to everyone that is assembled here on this lovely, beautiful, cold December, correction, January, December day. <laughs> January, Sabbath day. We're going to get all straightened out here in a little bit. We want to welcome everyone here this morning. Now, I accidentally woke up a little bit this morning with the croup, but I shall prevail. The question is, will you? And I don't know about that. When we gathered here today, we opened up with a beautiful hymn. I'd like you to turn to hymn number 88 in the blue book for a moment. And I'd like to welcome from all across the United States some very wonderful, God-fearing, Bible-believing, blood-washed, spirit-filled Israelite people numbered among the Anglo-Saxon, Celtic, Germanic, Gothic, European peoples of the earth. We are now the minority people on earth, but we are not giving up because we believe that the God who wrote the Bible has an enduring love for his people Israel, and he will see us through the waters of the Red Sea and the drowning of Pharaoh's army. So cheer up, look up, lift up your heads. Your redemption will come. We opened up our beautiful service this morning with a German hymn. If you'll notice, it was written many years ago. And it has a phrase in it that I'd like us to look at. It says, Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, O thou of God and man the Son. Notice the last verse. Beautiful Savior, Lord of the nations, Son of God, and Son of Man. Those beautiful lines are what we will be talking about today. Jesus Christ, true God and true man. The foundation of your faith. You take Christ away, the Son of God and the Son of Man, and Christianity dies. Amen. It falls on its face. When Jesus Christ conceived in a miraculous manner, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, how's that? grew up among men, was tempted in every point as we are tempted. When he hung on the cross, 
His soul went down into Sheol, Hades, to deliver the captives. Jesus looked into the face of hell. There is no event common to men that Jesus Christ did not endure. Son of God, Son of Man. And I ask myself the question, who am I to be talking about the greatest event in all history? That uncreated God, uncreated self-existing God, stepped out of eternity into time. God lives outside of time. But he stepped from that eternity into time to become a a, a kinsman redeemer for the people that he chose, that were chosen in time before the foundation of the world. Folks, we're on holy ground. And I feel like I should remove my shoes because I feel that when we're talking about the single greatest event in all of history, God becoming man to become our salvation, there is nothing greater. There is nothing that reaches to a higher, more sublime noble level of grandeur than the idea that a holy God, impeccably pure, righteous, altogether holy, would leave His glory and come down to this earth and suffer, be tortured, on a Roman crucifix, be put in the ground, his body in the ground, his soul descending into Sheol, into the bowels of hell. And there he rescued those that were held captive. He took the the keys of hell away from the jailer who was the jailer you know who the jailer was so Jesus could come along and he could say I am he that liveth behold I was dead but I'm alive forevermore amen and I have the keys to hell and death Revelation 118 how could Jesus Say that he had the keys to hell and death. He could say that because he took them away from Satan who held those keys. Folks, listen. We really need to be humble when we consider what we believe as a body. The foundation of our faith is in Christ, incarnate God, who was man and God. Very man and very God. 
just as fully God as he was fully man. Not half God, not half man. Fully God, fully man. We may never understand the mystery of the incarnate Christ. It's beyond human comprehension. But we have an obligation to put our faces in the Bible and know at least what God wants to teach us about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You know, people, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, that we are without excuse to know God because we can see what God is by nature and the creative work that he has performed. All of creation tells us what God did. He's the creator. We don't even need the Bible to know that. Although there's a world of atheists that have yet to figure that out. Yes. You need to write in your notes Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 20. Beautiful words that remind us that we are without excuse if we do not humble ourselves before the God of all creation. So nature teaches us what God did, but only the Bible you hold in your hand teaches you who God is. Without the Bible, you would not know who God is. Now you might say, well, I'm not sure about that. Do you know that the mystery of the being of God is the greatest mystery of all. After all, who are we in finite minds to comprehend the infinite God whose glory reaches into infinitude and we are finite creatures trying to understand the infinite it may not be possible for us to do that. So let's pray. God our Father, we humbly this day in the blessed name of Christ our Savior, by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to understand the mystery of the incarnate Christ, the author of our faith, the beginning and the end of our salvation. Help us, Lord God, to profoundly appreciate the gift of Jesus Christ, the incarnate God who came to this earth to redeem his people. O living God, Jesus came to earth as an Israelite to redeem Israel and set up a kingdom 
at some point in time. And all of this we humbly acknowledge, praise you and thank you in the blessed name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. The incarnate nature, the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus Christ into human form is the fulcrum upon which all biblical revelation will rest. And if we do not understand and appreciate how uncreated God became man, we're going to be in trouble. Now somebody might say, well, why, why did God, when he came down to the earth, have to become a man? Why is that? Why did God become man in the person of Christ, our Savior? Let the Bible answer that question. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21. For since by man came death, who was the man that brought death into the world? Did he have a name? What was it? Adam. Wherefore is by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned, Romans 5, 12. Do you know anyone that has never died? Do you know why babies die in the womb? Why do children, why are they born stillborn? Why does death pay no attention to age or any other factor? It's because death is a universal vindication that sin entered into the world. Now, if you can find a baby that will not die, that is impervious to death, then that child will be declared innocent. But I don't know a baby, never known a baby. I've held a baby that was deceased from its mother's womb. I held it in my hands and baptized that baby. Why? Because I wanted that child to know that the mother who carried her, the father who sired her, would have peace in the eternal nature of that child's soul. Now, when I read from 1 Corinthians 15, 21, for since by man came death, you've got to understand 
death entered into the world because of sin. By man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now watch out. That doesn't necessarily mean that they'll come back to life in a state of salvation. The truth is, nobody is going to escape God in death or in life. No one. You will not escape God in life or in death. The psalmist David says, If I make my bed, if I search for God in heaven, he will be there. If I make my way into hell, he will be there. It became necessary if by sin, entering into the world through man, that someone be sinless to change what the first man, Adam, corrupted. So it became necessary for God to take on the form of man because sin entered into the world by man. So now we need a sinless man to become a sacrifice to regain what was lost by the first Adam. How many see that? Amen. Okay, raise your hand if you understand that. God is holy. He demanded absolute perfection in a sacrifice. No one, after Adam sinned, was ever found perfect for a sacrifice to appease the wrath of God. So what God demanded, what God demanded, only God could supply. Nobody else could. It would be like a father who demanded of his children something that they could never, never, never do. So the father would step down and do what he wanted his children to do. If it was beyond their capability. So that's what God did. When he came down to this earth, he left his glory. Now I'm passing out a worksheet today. And hold on to it, church, because... We're going to be in this worksheet beyond today. So turn with me now in your Bible to John chapter 17 for just a moment. This is the called the Holy of Holies of the New Testament. So we just walked into the Holy of Holies. We're in John's Gospel chapter 17. In John's Gospel, chapter 17, Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, 
is in prayer. Now, Jesus is in prayer. So I want you to think with me. Jesus, the man, is in prayer to who? His Father. Now, in that very announcement, we have just forced every Bible student under the sun to deal with the being of God. We have spent endless time at this pulpit to prove from the Bible there's only one God. Only one eternal God. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord, one God. Not two gods. Not three gods, that's tritheism. One God. But now, we have Jesus making a petition to his Father. So what do we do with Jesus? You see, you run into a problem immediately. Jesus is not praying to himself. He's praying to his Father. I pray, God, you will see that the triune nature of God is a biblical concept. And if you don't believe in the triunity of God, I'm sorry. But by definition, you're not a Christian. By definition, you cannot be a Christian and deny the triune nature of God. Now, I realize that was a statement right there that a lot of people do not want to make. But I'm happy to make it. I want to testify of the deity of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is God. At the same time, he is man. Mystery. Yes, it's a mystery. Look at the words now of John, chapter 17, verse 1. Read these with me. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven. And what did he say? Father. Wait a minute, is Father capitalized? All right. Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. Now, Jesus is acknowledging that he is the Son. Earlier today, we ended one of our beautiful canticles with the glory of Patra. Glory be to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Holy Ghost. Those are not just mere words. They're beautiful. And they have meaning. And they reach back into the archives of 2,000 years of time. Now watch verse 2. Look at your Bible. John 17, 2. Words of Jesus. 
as thou hast given him power over all what? All flesh. Now that's a complete thought. Who has power over all flesh? What did the word say? Thou hast given him, the son, power over all flesh. That he should do what? That he should give eternal life to who? To as many as thou hast given him. Jesus will save not one soul that was not elected by the Father to be saved. Now you can carve that in stone. If you don't believe it today, you will if you survive to, to meet Jesus. God gave him power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as thou didst give him. Now let's read verse 3 together. And this is life eternal. Now wait a minute. Here's the definition. Here is your definition of eternal life. And this is life eternal. That they might know thee, might know thee. Who is thee? Come on, church, help me. That we might, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. You see how we're going to run into trouble? If we only believe that God is without triunity, we're in trouble. We're going to be no better off than the heathen who believe in many gods. It's called polytheism. Now you can blame whoever you want to blame in theological time and history for the word Trinity. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. How many of you know that the the Bible does not contain a lot of, thing, of words that are very, very sacred. Doesn't mean that they're not in the Bible. As a matter of fact, all I need do, church, is open my Bible to Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Go ye therefore and baptize all nations... Okay, all nations. In the context of the Bible, who are the nations? Who was named the father of many nations? Abraham. Father of many nations. Genesis 17. Baptizing them in the name. Now wait a minute. Not in the names, plural. Name singular in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit. That's the triune nature of God. So the Bible lets you 
stand there to believe or not believe what Scripture says. Back to John 17. This is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. You see that little phrase, the only true God? That's a true statement because there is only one true God. But in the unity of his being, there are three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But that's not unusual. I'm looking at a very handsome young man here today. And he is a very handsome boy in the, in the physical appearance. I won't identify him, but he's very handsome. And there's only one of him present. But if we broke him down into parts, he's spirit, he's soul, and he's body. Yet he's only one man. God in the unity of his being, is one. But in the triunity of his nature, his essence, his being, he is three. Not three gods, not one plus one plus one. That is tritheism. We are not tritheists. No, that's a heresy. So let's go back to John 17. Jesus said to his father, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Is that underlined in your Bible? If you believe what you just read, you believe that Jesus pre-existed his physical body. Glorify thou me with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I still have some people talking and visiting, so apparently they're not, they're not interested. But I pray that you will be. Because what we're talking about is pure gold. Amen. And I'm sorry that I'm not a better messenger to explain it. O Father, gl glorify thou me with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. That is a verse that forever proves Jesus pre-existed the Virgin Mary's womb. That Jesus is God. Not a great prophet, yes. But more than a prophet. Jesus is God. Fully God. Fully. Fully God. So with this thought, church, pick up your worksheet. And we're going to talk about how the Bible treats this mystery.
You know, the Bible calls the incarnate Christ a mystery. That's what the Bible calls it. So let's look at how the Bible dealt with this. From the beginning, there's any number of verses we could start with, but let's go to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9. This is a powerful verse. Ephesians 3, 9. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. Here's that word, mystery. Which from the beginning of the world. How far back in time does the mystery go? Beginning of the world. Hath been hid in God. Hid in the one true God. The first verse of the Bible opens up. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The one true God is triune in nature. Which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. Wait a minute. I thought Genesis 1, 1 said, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now I'm reading where Jesus created the heavens and the earth. I'm going to, who, who created the heavens and the earth? God or Jesus? Jesus is as much a creator as God his Father. They're all part of the same essence. Our sister Cassie married one man. Not three, but he's a spirit, soul, and body. And he's every much as much a part, every much a part of who he is and his spirit as his body or his soul. We cannot say that the spirit is greater than the soul. The body is lesser or greater than the Spirit. They all are co-equal and they share in common the unity of one person. I only say that to help people understand the triunity of God. So, Ephesians 3.9 says that this is a mystery how God could become man, it's a mystery from the beginning of time. From before time, beyond time. So let's go now to another place in Scripture. And this time let's go to Colossians 1, 26. And Ezekiel will, Ezekiel will read from Colossians 1, 26. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints.
even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. So here's a mystery hidden from generations, from ages past, that is now being revealed. And God is using the apostles to reveal it. So we add Colossians 1.26 to Ephesians 3.9. Let's go to Colossians 2. And let's have our reader read from Colossians chapter 2 and go down through to verse number 3. Wait a minute. We're in Colossians 2, 1 through 3. Colossians. Colossians 2, 1 through 3. Okay. For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and of the Father, and of Christ. Here again we have the mystery of God, and of the Father, and of Christ. We're talking about the mystery of the Incarnation. God becoming man to become our salvation. So I'm going to have Ezekiel read all the way through to verse 9. In whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now stop. Within the incarnate word is hid all the wisdom and the knowledge of God. That's a powerful theological statement. Read on. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order, and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Thank you. Now, stop for a moment. Let's think about it. We are commanded to be rooted and grounded in who? Christ. Rooted and grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ. Built up in Him. Established in the faith. Why are some people not... Why are Now listen, I'm going to ask a question here. I'm going to make you feel a little uncomfortable, so hold on. Why would people walk away from their faith? Because they were never grounded and rooted in Jesus Christ. If you're going to be a survivor, if you're going to be a Christian that survives the warfare of this earth, you better be rooted in Jesus Christ. If you are rooted in Christ, you will face every trial and be triumphant in this life. Your hope is in Christ. 
But if you're trusting in your family, if you're trusting in whatever you're trusting, apart from Jesus Christ, it will fail you. Now, let's go to verse 8. Here is a warning, and what do you think this warning that St. Paul is going to give us? What is he trying to warn us from in verse 8? Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Now, why would St. Paul say, beware? Don't let the philosophers upset your faith. We have to go back to the first century. It was filled with Platonic philosophy. There were philosophers on every street corner. And they were pulling you this way and that way. Have you ever heard of the Epicureans? The Stoics? There was a brand of philosophy for everyone that was interested. Take your worksheet and look down in the middle of the page. You see the word Gnosticism, Docetism, Adoptionism, Arianism, Sabellianism, Nestorianism, Monothelism. And I didn't even mention Macedonianism. I didn't mention or I didn't list tritheism. I didn't list more than 10 other heresies that were challenging the deity of Christ in the first century. And Paul's telling these people, look, you better not trust in the philosophy and the rudiments of man's thinking. You better get grounded and rooted in Christ where your security lies. Now, he's going to go to verse 9. Now, I know, church, that I'm not capable of saying what ought to be said now. But I'm going to have you look at verse 9 of Colossians 2. One of the greatest theologians that ever lived in a human body said that if he had to pick out one verse in the Bible that encapsulated for him the most important truth in all of Scripture, it would be Colossians 2.9. So Ezekiel, read that for us. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. What in the world does that mean? The word Godhead appears three times in the Bible. It's in the book of Romans chapter 1. It's in the book of Acts chapter 17. And it appears here. So what does this phrase Godhead mean? Well, it has reference to all three members of the Godhead when they come together in unity, in the unity of God. It's the Father's Son and Holy Spirit. Now what's important, people, 
is that when Jesus Christ walked this earth, he embodied all the fullness of God. Now, what does that mean? It means that when Jesus spoke, he spoke with one voice. The voice of God in the unity of his being, he represented the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. All of whom are co-equal, co-eternal in the unity of God's essence or being. So let's read on to the next verse. Colossians 2, verse 10. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. You are complete in Christ. Now, beloved, it's so important that we remember that statement. Do you know principalities and powers includes all the demonic world? It includes all of the fallen angels, all of the demons, the disembodied spirits of the angels that sinned and went after strange flesh, as in Genesis chapter 6. But let's look at something here more closely. Let's move on, but remember what we've read here. Let's look at Colossians 1. Let's go to Colossians 1. St. Paul was one of many different apostles who unveiled the mystery of the incarnate God. That's why I know I sound like a redundant broken record. But I encourage this congregation to know that the church of the living God is resting on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus being the chief cornerstone. If you don't get the apostles and their doctrine right, you're going to be listening to heresy most of your life. If you don't do anything else in this life and world, get grounded in the apostles because they're going to be one with the prophets in unison with God through Christ our Savior. So now we're going to look more closely at Colossians 1.15. So let's just take this slowly. Ezekiel, read Colossians 1.15. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Who is the image of the invisible God? Jesus Christ. Firstborn. Now, be very cautious here. Jehovah Witnesses love this verse. Because they want to seize on the idea that Jesus is created. Firstborn of every creature. 
That's not even talking about what they think it's talking about. If you do a full study on that phrase, it has to do with the idea that Jesus is in the hierarchy of God himself. Who is the image of the invisible God. Now, wait a minute. Hold on. God in his essence is invisible. Who has ever seen God? We'll come to that question in a minute. Just think about it for now. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him, let's read it together. We're in Colossians 1, 15. For by him were all things created. Wow, what a statement. That are in heaven, that are in the earth, visible and invisible whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him and by him all things, what? Consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that he might become Firstborn among many brethren. Firstborn from the dead was Jesus. Firstborn from the dead. That he might, as we read in Colossians 1. He is before all things, by him all things consist. He's the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Ezekiel, read verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Now, church, some of you people are very bright. All of you, however, know what this verse means. Everyone in this building knows right now, I think, when it says it pleased the Father that in Jesus all the fullness should dwell. And that's why in chapter 2 verse 9 it says in Christ dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And that we are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Now, Jesus is the head of the church. There's no king in the church. It's the head of the church. But Jesus, not only is head of the church, one day he will be the king of the kingdom. Thank you. Now, let's go to 1 Timothy 3.16. 1 Timothy 3.16. I, I know that we're running through a lot of verses here, but these are among the most important verses in the Bible for us to understand the mystery of the incarnate Christ. So let's read that together. Ezekiel will lead us in 1 Timothy 3.16. Together. And without controversy, 
Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Okay, now, let's stop for a moment. You know what a Unitarian believer is. How many know what the Unitarian Church believes? The Unitarian Church believes there is a God. But they don't believe that God manifested himself in human form in the person of Jesus. So one time, in the largest Unitarian Church in America, the founder of that church, I won't name his name, but he invited an evangelical preacher to take his place one day. And he only gave instruction, he only gave this word of instruction to the preacher. He said, I don't want you to preach on anything controversial. You don't dare mess up the minds of our people with anything controversial. Will you promise that? The guy said, yes, I will. So he opened up his sermon. 1 Timothy 3.16. Now church, listen. That verse needs marked in your Bible. It's powerful. And without controversy. No controversy about it. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. There it is. Justified in the spirit. Seen of angels. Preached unto the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? The lost sheep of the house of Israel. Hello, hello. Believed on in the world and was received up into glory. That is the gospel in one, one, one verse. There it is. Now, a lot of people are camped out at John 3.16. I'd like to have them add 1 Timothy 3.16. So now, having been camped out here at 1 Timothy, I suppose what we need to do now is to go to the mystery revealed more clearly than anyone in all of biblical history. Who did God choose to just rip the cover off of the mystery of the incarnate Christ? Who do you think he used? Let's guess. John the Apostle. Do you know, church, we're going to read three, word, three verses that you know very well. Ezekiel's going to lead us in John 1, 1 through 3. Now, folks, this may be hard for all of us to understand today. In the first century of the Christian world, the words that we will now read from the Gospel of John shook the foundations 
of the New Testament Christian world. Because it also shook the foundations of all the Hebrew, Judean, Old Testament believers that lived at that time. Every Hebrew was mystified by the words of 1 John. This is the final unveiling of the mystery of the incarnate Christ, together with Ezekiel. In the beginning, the the beginning beginning was the Word, and the the Word word was with God, and and the the Word word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And in Him was the light of what? Life was the light of men. The life of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness darkness comprehended it not. The darkness of the world could not comprehend the incarnate nature of of the Christ of God. How long did it take the Christians of the first century to figure John out? Well, before the century ended, they had it all figured out among the apostles. I just made a pretty big statement. The apostles figured it out. They laid the mystery out in clear terms. But boy, the people that were not apostles wrestled, struggled with this. And the Greek philosophers, the Latin philosophers, and all the philosophical-minded people wrestled with these words for the next 350 years. As a matter of fact, the words of John 1, 1 through 3, were not finally, finally resolved for over 600 years in the Christian world. The apostles had it figured out in the first century. And that's why we need to look at the apostles closely. Now, I'm going to say something now that I probably will get in trouble for it. But I'm only trying to please God. In the Bible, in the words of an apostle, he said this. You'll guess who I'm talking about. I'll identify him if you don't guess who he is. That all the house of Israel may know that this same Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and Christ. That's the Apostle Peter. Now it was Peter addressing Israelites of the dispersion who said this. 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. If you turn your Bible there, you'll see these words. Well, 
We're going to read 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 and 2. How does that start, Ezekiel? Read us the first verse. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, who is Peter addressing his epistle to? The sojourners of the dispersion. The strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Elect according to foreknowledge of God the Father. Through, help me, sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. There's the triunity. Look at 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter chapter number, verse Peter 1 and verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God is the elector. He does the choosing. God chooses who's going to be saved from the foundation of the world. Read your Bible, Ephesians 4, verse 1. 2 Timothy 1, verse 9. God the Father does the choosing. It's the foreknowledge of God is in the domain of the Father. But who is the Redeemer? Who makes possible what the Father purposed? The Son of God. Jesus shed His blood to make righteous those who God the Father chose. Now who makes what Jesus made possible, who makes it effectual? The Holy Spirit, the sanctifier. God our Father is the elector. Jesus is the redeemer. The Holy Spirit is the sanctifier. And in Jesus Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells. Now, if you look at your worksheet, we are ready to look at the mystery clarified, clarified completely and wholly, visibly. And we're going to close with this. Ezekiel is going to turn to Matthew 3, 16 and 17. Now, folks, listen. Up to this point all morning, we have just been talking about the triunity of God in a sort of a veiled way. But now we're going to have a visual. A visual. Here they are. We're in Matthew 3, 16 and 17. Read. Thank you. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven, saying, 
This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is in the water. He's being baptized. Who appears to symbolize the Holy Spirit? The dove. And where's the voice from heaven coming from? The Father. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I guess this will be our stopping point. <laughs> Shall we be standing? The moon and stars, they wept. The morning sun was dead. The Savior of the world was fallen. His body on the cross, His blood poured out for us. The weight of every curse upon Him.